James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And if in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for the challenge it brings uh, to our own sinful hearts. God, thank you that you do not leave us uh, in places of, of comfort or, or um, resting in our, in our own thinking, but God, you challenge our thinking and you bring us to a place uh, of wrestling with you, wrestling with your word, God, so that we can test our faith and see if our faith is genuine. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work today, God, to reveal places where we are um, not living as we should, we are not following you as we should. And God, especially, I would pray that you would be at work to show us whether our, our hearts are right with you, whether you have brought saving faith to us or not. But God, if you are working in our hearts, uh, that means you are working to bring that salvation. So God, I pray that work would be happening even as we hear your word. Lord, work powerfully, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the passage I just read for you, uh, depending on how well you know uh, the Bible, uh, is a pretty theologically challenging passage. And so to kind of help us get into that, I, I want us to imagine what it must have been like to be the first generation of Christians, the first generation especially uh, of ministers and missionaries as they were going out spreading this new message, this gospel message that Jesus had given. If you've uh, been with us, we've talked about James and, and who he was. He was a younger brother, biological brother of Jesus himself, even though he was not a believer in Jesus before Jesus resurrected. After Jesus resurrected, James became a believer. So James knew this guy, Jesus, pretty well, like about as good as anybody could have known him. And we look at other New Testament writers like Paul, who got to uh, see a vision of Christ himself, and Peter, who had spent his entire life, uh, or his, Jesus' entire ministry, walking along with Jesus and all that he did. So we can imagine the, the ministry of these kinds of church leaders as they, their very beginning of the church, before all the New Testament was written, as they begin to share this message, and this message is going out. We know much of that story from the book of Acts as, as God's Spirit works in these people, and this brand new message starts to spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. And the beauty and the, the joy that all that would bring, but we also read in Acts and, and can tell from these letters, it wasn't all smooth and easy, was it? 
we can sometimes, without really thinking it, think back to, oh, that, that first generation, man, that, that was where it was at. Miracles were happening, and it just would have been so great to be a part. They had a lot of things to figure out, didn't they? They had to figure out so many things that were new, and what they were going on was the, the verbal proclamation. Like, if I misspeak today, you can go, go back and open up your Bible and say, here it is in black and white, Pastor Philip, here is where it is. That first generation, they didn't have it written down yet. They didn't have Jesus' words in pen that was all spoken. And so they had to wrestle with so many things. So I can just imagine, I can imagine one potential error of that first century world. And I, I'm, I'm using my imagination, but I'm going from this paragraph about what, what James was addressing. You see, we think James might have been the very first New Testament book ever written down. So this was early, early in the writings of the New Testament. Now, Peter and Paul and James and others have been preaching, but what's written down, we don't have the book of Romans yet. We don't have the book of Galatians yet. So James is not trying to correct Paul. They're on the same team here. But imagine what it would have been like to hear Paul's message of preaching to Jewish people. Hey, you don't have to do the works of the law. You no longer have to, to keep the Sabbath in exactly that way and all these different ritualistic things. You are saved by grace alone. That's an incredible message. It's the good news of the gospel. It is by grace alone you are saved. Believe in Jesus and by that and that alone you are saved. But just imagine, you, you've played the game of telephone or you know how, how news travels. You start to share one message and it gets passed on and the next time you leave off something or the next time you add something. Or it goes a little further, a little further, a little further. So imagine the first century world trying to, trying to keep Christians in, in right thinking and right theology without the Bible written down. That would have been hard, right? That would have been very hard. So as Paul is, is out ministering out in one part of the, the Roman Empire and James is back in Jerusalem and the, the gospel is spreading, you can just imagine that somewhere along the way, people pick up some bad ideas, some false ideas. And so I imagine what James is addressing and Paul himself addresses is that there's a group that heard something Paul said. They said, hey, grace is free. That means I can just utter this little phrase, Jesus is Lord, and then I can live how I want. I can do what I want to do. Now, to be clear, Paul didn't preach that message. James doesn't preach that message. Nobody preached that message. But you can imagine how that would come up. How somebody, as the gospel begins to go forth, people get, they get, they get some right phrases. They got some right phrases. Salvation is by grace alone. That's a right phrase. Jesus is Lord, that's the right phrase. Caesar is not Lord, right? They, they've got some good words. But then the way that lives out, the way they add on to it or take from it, those kind of things could be misleading. And the reason I want you to hear that, one, is because this passage is hard, but two, that same problem happens today, does it not? That very same issue takes place all across our world. And we have less excuse because it's, it's written down for us. We can come back, we can test it, we can, we can see this. We can see over and over again this happens in our, in our culture. And I promise my, my heart here is not to point fingers, but just to call us back to the Bible. But we can, especially in a, a Christian nation, a, a world where, where, the, where we have Christianese, we speak Bible generally, we have some phrases in the Bible that are, that are kind of in everybody's mind and hearts. And so people can begin to use certain phrases that are right phrases and say things like, I, I, I put my faith in Jesus. I accepted Christ as Lord. And you say, wow, I know those kind of terminology. I, I grew up in a church. I, I've been to church. I know some of those words. And yet we look at our life and their life and different. And we're like, wait a second. There's just something that doesn't quite match up here. You're, you're, the words out of your mouth, or better yet, the words out of my mouth, they sound Jesus-y. They sound Christian-y. They sound like Bible. 
And yet, does my life match it? Does my life match it? That's the issue James is getting at here. He's not correcting somebody else's, he's not correcting Paul. They're on the same team. He's not, he's not changing things up. It, it sounds, it's got a little different emphasis than some of the things that Paul focuses on sometimes. But their heartbeat is the same. It's that Christ alone saves. And when he saves, it changes us. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith never stays alone. It always transforms our lives. It always changes how we act. This matters for us. This matters for Christians. This matters especially in the Bible Belt. Because we can say Christian things. And we can act in a certain way on certain days of the week, like Sunday. And we can look a little bit on the outside like a Christian. But God wants us to search inwardly. To search inwardly and say, where is my heart? And to use our, the evidence of our whole lives. as, as say, is, is, is what's, What I say with my mouth is that really what I believe deep in my heart. I, I want to be very careful that this, this message, this, this passage for us, my goal today, is not for us to point fingers and judge others. I want to be very clear. Even as your pastor, my, my goal is not for me to judge you. My goal is that this, for all of us, this passage would force us to do this, to look inwardly, to look at our hearts, to use, to use this passage to, to lay our hearts before God and say, where is my heart, God? Where is my heart? Have have you done in my heart what I, what I think you've done? Or, or if you've got some questions about that, you're not sure what that means, this is, this is a chance for us to say, what, what is God doing? What is God doing in my heart? And has, it, has, it, uh, has God saved me? Has God saved me? I, I am neither qualified nor interested in being the ultimate judge of your soul. I'm not. I'm not. That's, that's not my job. God is. God is interested in being the judge of your soul. He is qualified and He will be and is. And so our job today is to say, God, move in our hearts so that we can see our souls the way you see them, to see the reality of our hearts so we can ask if God is at work, if God has saved us. I'd summarize the warning of our passage. The first way I'd summarize it is this. Faith without works is counterfeit faith. Faith without works is counterfeit faith. Verse 14 is the primary question in this passage, the primary issue that he's going to deal with the rest of the paragraph. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So he's asking, if you say you're a Christian and your life doesn't look like the way Jesus calls Christians to live, Christian means you know, follower of Jesus. If you say, I'm a Christian, and yet your life doesn't match that, he says, are you really saved? Are you really a Christian? If your life doesn't match the way Jesus calls us to live, then something's wrong there. Something's wrong there. Faith without works is counterfeit, not genuine, not authentic. It is, there's something wrong with that kind of faith. Faith without works is counterfeit faith. Verse 14 gives us a clue on what he's talking about here because it's one of the things that's confusing about this passage is we read the word faith and we're thinking it's one thing, but he, here's what he says, verse 14, if someone says the NIV takes a little liberty, but I think it's at the heart of it. It says, if someone claims he has faith. The idea here is not somebody who has genuine faith and then doesn't have works. That, that doesn't exist. Genuine faith, we're going to see, is faith that works. He's saying, if he says he has faith, so this is just about to your mouth. Claiming faith, but not actually having faith. We've got to understand what he's talking about here. If someone says, not genuine faith, but true, if he, if he, he doesn't have genuine faith, he just says it, 
and his actions don't match up. We get a better idea of what he's talking about. Verse 19, and this is so piercing. He says, you believe that there is, there is one God, that God is one. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, what, what the Jews would have called the Shema for the, the Hebrew word of, of hear, because it starts, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. People who grew up in a, a Jewish time, Jewish still today, Jewish world, that, that's, that's one of the most uh, quoted verses central to the Old Testament, central to the ancient world, because everybody else believed there are multiple gods. So he says, you just, there's just one God. That was a revolutionary claim back in, back in ancient times. And so James says, oh, that's, that's amazing. You believe that there's just one God? You, you say that with your mouth, there's just one God? He says, you know who else know that, knows that? The demons. Verse, verse uh, 19 continues. He says, Here, you believe there is one God or God is one? Good. Even the demons believe that. All right, listen, I'm, I'm, if I was counseling James on the things that he was, I'd be like, hey, man, whew, that's a little, don't you want to pull back just a little bit here? You're, you't comparing them to demons. Like, but he, did, he doesn't want to hold back any punches because he wants you to know how serious this is. He wants you to know how dangerous it is to speak one thing and live a different way. Demons know all the information there is to know about God, right? They know, they have a mental capacity, a mental understanding of who God is. Uh, Sam Albury is a uh, pastor, and he wrote a little uh, commentary that some of us are reading. And he said this, he said, there are no atheistic demons. Wow. There are no atheistic demons. He said, hell is full of good theology. And that is piercing to somebody who spends a lot of time trying to get my theology straight, right? I'm trying to make sure it's all good. I want to make sure everything I think and believe in my mind is right. And that's good. That's holy. We should. But that's not the end of it. You could have all the right information. You could, you could, you could wax eloquently about how God can be three in one. You can go on and on about how justification, sanctification, glorification all fit together. You know who else? The demons could do that. The demons could tell you lots of things about God that we don't know. And yet, there's something wrong with their faith, right? He says that demons have a certain kind of faith. They have the information in their heads, and yet there's something wrong. They do not have saving faith. When he says, when he talks about what the demons believe, he's talking about what they think, the, the information. So what's the difference between what the demons believe and saving faith? What's, that's, that's the truth. That's what we're trying to get at here. Claimed faith and true faith. The demons can't have one kind of faith because that kind of faith is a faith that loves God. There's the difference. The demons know the information, but they don't love the God that the information's about. <laughs> they know it, but they do not love Him. They do not love Him. The demons know God as an enemy. It says the demons believe and shudder. And this is kind of a, a little jab that, that I think that James is making. He says, you go around saving, saying believe, you believe in God, and yet your, your life has no reaction to it. At least the demons react in some way. They know the information and they shudder from it. <laughs> if you really knew God, you wouldn't just know that in your mind. You would love Him. If you knew the glory of who He is, if you know the beauty of who Christ is, if you know what He's done for you, then if you truly know it, like in the way you're supposed to know it, it pierces your heart, changes your affections, and draws you to love Him. The demons know God as an enemy. We know God as a father. We know God, as He says about Abraham, we know God as a friend. We have a relationship with God. I, I know some information about my dad. My dad was born October 31st. Check my notes to make sure I don't say this wrong. 1956 in Middlesbrough, Tennessee to John and Elizabeth Long. I know information about him. I know information about him graduating from the Auburn University School of Veterinary Medicine and getting married to 
Carolyn Shane Gatlin in 1984 and having two boys and living in Mobile, Alabama. And he's purchased a house in Simpsonville and trying to move here quickly. You know, I, I can tell you information about my dad. But that's not, that's not the, the core of what it is for him to be my dad, is it? The core is I have a relationship with him. I, I love him. I love my dad. I don't just know stuff about my dad. I, I love him. I love him. Amber and I celebrated 11 years of marriage yesterday. We married 11 years. Yeah, amen. And uh, now that, I think when I got married, 11 years seemed like, wow, that's really something. You've gotten, now I feel like we're just getting started. I can feel totally like a newlywed, don't know what I'm doing in marriage. But we're, we've celebrated 11 years. I can tell you lots of things about her. I, I know Amber, know her likes and her dislikes. And I know things that irritate her and when I should stop doing those things. And, and I, sh I know... I know lots of things about her, but it's not the information in my head that's the core of our, our marriage, is it? It's not that I can write you a paper or, or describe her on a diagram. Or, no, it's, it's, it's that she's my friend. It's that I love her. It's about, that's, that's the core of our relationship. So it is with true faith. It's not just information. The demon's got the information. That is counterfeit faith if we're saying, I know all the information about God, and yet it changes nothing in our life. Counterfeit faith is faith without works. Our hearts have to be connected. Our hearts have to be drawn. So many people, unfortunately, out, out in the world, we, we, I'm so blessed in infinity. We have so many godly people here. So I, I, on the whole, I, I almost, you know, I'm tempted to skip hard passages because I love Infinity Church. So many good people here. But we preach the next passage in case there's a warning, in case there's somebody here, in case somebody you know, in case you're walking in this, that, that lives this way. Because I have known. Plenty of people who can point back and they say, listen, I, I prayed this prayer. I, I prayed with the pastor back when I was six years old. I got, I got baptized. And, and then they you know, just kind of show up to church here and there. Or, or the, the nothing in their life looks like a Christian. Not perfection. The Bible does not expect us before Christ returns to be perfect. It's about progress, not perfections, over time. But, but I know so many people, I've known people that, that claim with their mouth Christianity. And that their lives don't look like Christ. Not perfect, but progressing toward Christ. And when you have to just say, is, 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 God, is God at work there? Is God at work there? If I had just stood up on my wedding day and said, yes, I, will, I do. I will marry this woman. And then twice a year, I went and visited her <laughs> on, on Christmas and our anniversary. You just have to wonder, is, are you doing marriage right? There's, some, there's something wrong there. There's something wrong there. We as Christians are called to a greater faith than just just like the demons, just knowing the right information. It should show up in our hearts that leads to our actions. And he gives an example of that. Verse 15 and 16 he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them some the things they need for the body, what good is that? Last week we saw the example of partiality, treating somebody rich with special treatment while, while neglecting somebody, trying to, try to get away from somebody who's poor. And so here he used the example of one of your own brothers and sisters, another Christian who's hungry. This is, this is not like they don't get to the fancy food. It says they don't have the food for daily, daily need, daily food, basic necessities. And it'd be like somebody coming in today and saying, man, I, paycheck ran out Tuesday. I'm starving. Can I, can I just, can we do lunch together? And you just say, hey, man, hope, hope things go well for you. God bless you. I'll pray for you. And then you go to Arizona Steakhouse for lunch, for a nice lunch. That, there's something wrong with that, isn't it? There? There's something wrong with that kind of living. 
Truly, somebody who's truly a Christian, when they see a brother or sister in need, says, yeah, you know what, I don't have a way to figure all this out, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. How, how can we make this work? And it's more than just the one-time thing. It's about who your heart is, who, 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 are, who you live, out, live your life to be. One aspect of faith in the Bible, beyond just, just mental assent, is trust. One of the things that's hard sometimes about loving uh, like we're supposed to is we, don't, we, don't, we try to figure it all out, like, oh, what do they do to be in this situation? And how do we, how do we get all those things figured out? How, how can we trust God in those moments? Does our heart, does our faith in God lead us to trust Him enough that I can take action and trust that He's going to work like it's supposed to? Uh, I heard Matt Chandler, a pastor in Dallas, describe trust this way. He says, you know how I know how all of you trust those chairs are going to hold you? Because <laughs> you sat down in them, <laughs> right? You, you, you knew the information. You didn't even think about this when you walk in, I know. But you trusted that chair was going to hold you when you sat down so much that you walked up and you sat down in that chair. What would we think of somebody who I said, you know, if I walked up and you said, hey, do you trust the chair is going to hold you? you say, yeah, of course, I'm sitting in it, right? If I asked that to somebody else and they, said, they, they walked in and said, hey, do you trust that chair is going to hold you? And, I said, and they said, yeah. And I said, all right, prove it. And instead of sitting down, they, they pulled out a whiteboard and they started drawing, to you, drawing for you all, the, all the, the, uh, the material properties of the steel frame that's holding that chair. And they described for you the welding process of how they get the pieces fit together and the weight capacity and, and all these things. And I said, wow, that's really odd that you know all those things, but okay, uh, do, you, do you trust enough to sit down? I said, well, yeah, of course. Okay, well, take a seat. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. No, are you, do you believe it? Yeah. Well, then take a seat. No, I'm okay. We would, we would think something's wrong. You don't, you don't trust it enough to take the step, to actually sit on it, to actually lean on it. How many times do we go through life saying, yeah, I believe these things about God. I trust He's done these things. But when time comes to sit down, to lean on it, to put your weight on it, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, I'm just going to keep going about my way. Do we trust God enough to take action? To take action. Faith isn't just mental information. It's the trust to follow Him to go with Him, to do the things He's called us to do. And James gives us a very strong warning of a faith that just stays in our heads and never leads to action because it never got into our hearts. Verse 20, he says, Faith apart from works is useless. Useless. It doesn't do what it was supposed to do. It doesn't accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish. And the most important thing that that faith does by Christ's work in His Spirit in us is it saves us. And it says, if your faith doesn't take action, that means you don't have true faith. Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, lifeless, no breath in it. It, it, it is, is useless. It does not save you. Pastorally, my, my prayer, my concern, my brokenness is that there would be people among us who would say the words, I'm a Christian. I have been saved. Jesus is Lord. And yet have this version of faith, counterfeit faith. A faith that's just verbal, just mental, and has never gotten to their hearts. And so are in fact dead. Corpses have, have no life in them because they have no spiritual life, no true, genuine, saving faith. I want you to feel the weight of that. That you can say one thing and not, not actually be saved. You can say the right words. Somebody can write them down for you. Pray a prayer or do something. And, and you could do all the right motions and nobody could be have bad intentions, but you could do those things and yet your heart never be transformed. And he wants you to feel the weight of that. The alternative to that counterfeit faith, James describes as a, as a genuine faith. And genuine faith is saving faith 
and it's shown by works. Genuine saving faith is shown by works. Verse 18 says, I will show you my, work, my faith by my works. My faith is going to show up in the way I live. Alex Cook is our, our missionary who's uh, studying in Guatemala before he goes to Mexico. He and his family go to Mexico this summer. Uh, he got this illustration from somewhere, probably, I think Matt Chandler, but I'm quoting Alex because that's where I got it from. He said, you know, he preached here one day and he said, you know, if I came running in a little bit late today and I said, hey guys, I'm sorry I was late. I was walking out on the road and I got hit by a semi-truck, but now I'm here. You'd be like, uh, that, something doesn't match up with that, lie, that story. Your story can't be true because if something that big had a, a physical impact on your life, we'd be able to tell. You, you would look different if you just got hit by a semi-truck. And Alex said, if you've been impacted by the grace of God, it will have a bigger impact on your life than a semi-truck. There should be evidence. You, you, should, you, you can't just say, I, I believe in Jesus. Grace has changed me. And look exactly the same as you did before that happened. You've been impacted by something far too big. By the grace of the gospel. The God Almighty who created the universe saw how sinful and wretched we are. And instead of abandoning us, sent His Son to give His very life so that your sins could be paid for and sin's power could be broken. That when he died on the cross and paid for your sins and resurrected, defeating death and the devil once and for all, so that everybody who believes in him will be transformed and saved so they can be with him forever. If, if you've been hit by that kind of, of good news, you can't look exactly the same as before it hit you. You can't. It will transform your life. Genuine faith, true faith, and the works that follow it are inseparable inseparable. You cannot bring them separate, take them apart. Verse 18, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying, somebody says, oh, okay, that's, I, I hear what you're saying, James, but you, you be the works Christian, I'll be the faith Christian. We'll just be in two different camps and it'll be okay. We can just all, all be together. He said, no, no, that doesn't, doesn't happen that way. You can't separate out faith and works as two different groups of people. It doesn't happen that way. It's like trying to separate a heart from a heartbeat or a lung from the oxygen that breathes in it. If you, if you separate it out, you kill it. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You've got to have both together. Verse 22 explains that a little more. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works. He says faith is active. He's talking about Abraham here, but faith is active along with works. What does it do? He, he says the, the, the word here, the ESV says, Active along with. I like that. It's, but it's one, one word in the original Greek that just literally means work together. So literally that phrase is faith works together with works. Which is why they chose a little different wording because that's confusing. But I like that. Faith works together with works. These go together. They're, they're, they're inseparable. Sam Albury, again, that uh, pastor, he says, We don't always live out what we say we believe, but we do always believe what we live out. He's saying, you, you could say one thing about what you believe, and your actions are going to show another. The actions show what you really actually believe. Your actions reveal your heart. They reveal your heart. Faith and works are meant to be together. Genuine saving faith is shown by works. And he gives examples of that. We've seen through James already the way he talks about work. Just last week, James 2.8, he, he calls it the royal law, quoting Christ's law, Christ the king. If we're going to be a part of the kingdom, we follow the king. What does that look like? We love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody has true, genuine faith, 
has love for neighbor. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you have genuine saving faith, it will translate into loving your neighbor. Not perfectly, not always right, but the progress of your life will show love for neighbor if you have love for the Lord in your heart. And if you don't ever love your neighbor, we have to wonder, is there love for God in our hearts? Another example James uh, gives throughout, throughout this, the, the, the book of James, throughout this letter, is that he continues to use examples of mercy and compassion, of caring for those for the least of these. So he quotes even just uh, in, in this passage about somebody who's poorly clothed and lacking food. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Or 127, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Or James 2, 2, if a, man is, uh, if a poor man in shabby clothing comes into your assembly. So these are not, it's not random or arbitrary that he thinks of the least of these, the, the needy among you as church members. He says, if you genuinely follow Jesus, you're going to be the kind of person Jesus was. Who did Jesus hang out with? The outcast and the sinner. He cared for the ones who were needy. He mended broken hearts. He met the widow and the orphan. He cared for those in need. If, we're his, if we are his followers, we're going to be that kind of person. Matthew 25, he says, What you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you have done for me. There's a clear call throughout the Bible to care for those who need it, who need care, who need compassion. You're doing that as you bring in clothes for DSS, for uh, the foster kids in our, in our, uh, right here in our back door in Lawrence County. Uh, I tell you, another ministry that's been on my heart recently is caring for people in addiction. I, I think of Dave Moore who passed away February a little over a year ago and how good he was at caring for people as they fought off so many demons. And uh, man, I just, I just miss him and miss that kind of ministry. We, we want to care for those that are hurting, care for those who have needs. And to be clear, those are not earning our salvation. They're the evidence of it. They're the evidence of it. Verse 22 says, Faith was completed by his works. It's a powerful reoccurring, reoccurring thing in James. Completed is this word for a, getting to the end to which it was intended. The word for, for that is the, 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 the completed word. Getting to the end. Faith is brought to the end that it was intended to have. And it helps us understand how a surface tension between Paul and James. James 22, faith was completed by his works. And you read that and go, wait, I read some other things in the Bible. What about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. James, if he had read that, this was written after James was written. But if James would have read that, he would have said, amen. We are saved absolutely by faith alone. And James would say, keep reading the next verse in Ephesians 2. For, by, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These are clearly the same gospel message. You've been saved by faith. And when you have received that faith, that faith doesn't stay alone. It translates into action. Our good works are not the, the source, the root of our salvation. I say all the time, it is the fruit. Our good works are the fruit, not the root. Paul writes Romans 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Or do we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. We have been saved by grace. We have been saved by what Christ has done. And that translates into a transformed life. Just to make that tension a little harder, in case you, in case you, I want you to be Bible students. 
So I want you to go to your Bibles. So you come across this phrase in James 2, and you go, what? At least I do. Three times it shows up. James 2, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Verse 24, you see that a, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 25, was not also Ahab, Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When you hear that, it sounds like a direct contradiction of what we read in other places like Romans uh, 4, 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what, shall, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So which one is it, Paul? Justified not by works, he says, or James saying he justified by works. So we, we can bring these together. Not, it's not actually that I'm putting it before you like it's hard. It is hard, but we're, we're not the first person to ask this question. So the, the answer is here. Romans 4, when he talks about, when Paul talks about justified, he's talking about being declared righteous by God through faith. That at the moment of your salvation, God looks at you and says, here's the righteousness of Christ on you. I no longer see you as a sinner. I see you as a saint. I see you as a person who is, has the identity of Christ. That you've been brought in. You've been united with Christ. That's the way Paul talks about justified. When James talks about it, when he uses this word justified, he's talking about how as we go through life, our works demonstrate what God declared when we were saved. Our works are the evidence. They're the declaration. You are justified. He's saying it's declaring to the world that what God has done was real, that the beginning was real. So it's the same word. I know it sounds different in different contexts. But these guys are on the same team. They proclaim the same gospel. Both James and Paul quote Genesis 15 about, G, about Abraham, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Our faith saves us. And true faith translates into works, translates into action. Genuine saving faith is shown by works. The gospel is far too powerful to only change your mind. The gospel has far too much power to not affect your heart too. If you have truly received the saving grace of God, it will impact your actions, not just what's going on between your ears. True gospel salvation is a life-transforming reality, not just something you think about when you want to. Let me give you three examples of this to close, fast examples. from Two, two right here from James. Abraham is who he quotes uh, as the first example of true, genuine, saving faith. You know, if you grew up in church, you know the story of Father Abraham. Had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. This is the, the patriarch of the Old Testament. This is the guy who was the very beginning of, of understanding what it means to be a, a part of God's people. This is, this is like the, the patriarch of all patriarchs. If you're going to quote somebody as like, you know, all right, this is the historic guy to quote, quote Abraham. All right, so he quotes Abraham and talks about how Abraham believed in God. It was kind to him as righteousness. You go back and read Genesis, though, that was in Genesis 15. The next couple chapters, there's, some, there's some, some fuzzy times in Abraham's life. He tried to pass off his wife as his sister to try to get himself out of trouble. He got confused or, you know, kind of a little sideways from God's plan and took on his, his wife's uh, servant as another wife to try to do his own thing. You know, all that happened. And who is this guy? Who does he believe in? But you get to, to Genesis 22, and God does something incredibly challenging. He calls Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his own son. He says, the son whom you love, Isaac. And it says he got up early in the morning and loaded up his son and went to Mount Moriah, took, took his son to go and offer him. We know the, that story is Abraham picks up the knife and is about to be willing to do the thing he was asked to do. 
God says, no, no, stop. That's enough. I didn't actually need you to do it. The ram is provided for you in the thicket. The ram is sacrificed in Isaac's place. But that episode is a test for Abraham whether he would really and truly trust God with everything. And from that point forward in Abraham's life, there's no more waffling. He doesn't go back and forth. Genesis 22 is the moment where we can look back and say, at Genesis 15, God said, I believe, you're saved. You have righteousness. Genesis 22 is where Abraham's, where God says, see, I told you so. God saw it in him at 15, but at 22 is where he was tested and it was proved. And you say, okay, that's great, but that's Abraham. He is the, the father of Israel, the father of the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's like telling, hey, be a good American like George Washington. I, he was like the greatest. We're not going to measure up to that. So then who else does James use? He says, what about Rahab? Isn't this incredibly powerful that James puts Abraham and Rahab as our two examples of faith? And he puts them together. He's not elevating one above the other. He says, here's an example, Abraham. Here's another example, Rahab. You know Rahab's story? She was a prostitute in Jericho. She was, no, no, no young girl, I've heard this, nobody grows up trying to be a prostitute. There's something wrong with the society if that's who she's, she is to be. And she's heard the stories about Israel. She's heard about what God has done for Israel. She's heard about how they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And so many people in Jericho had heard that story and were just afraid. Rahab heard that story and said, there's the one true God. That's the one true God. I believe in him. And then Rahab, how do we know that story? How do, how do we know that she had that faith? It's because spies came into Jericho. She figured out who they were. And she says, let me take care of you. I know your God is the one true God. Come and hide here. She was willing to risk her own life. Her faith in the one true God led to action. Her faith saved her, but that faith didn't stay alone. It translated into action. And so just like Abraham, Rahab too was an, an example of how faith translates into works. Genuine saving faith is shown by works. But I told you I had three examples. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Rahab. The third example is you, is you. If God was able to show you your own heart today, what would he show you? What would he show you is going on in your heart and in your life? Do the words of your mouth proclaim Christianity and yet the actions of your life look far from the Lord? Again, not perfection. We all stumble daily. But is God bringing your life closer and closer in alignment to what Christ modeled for us? And if not, we have to say, is, is the Spirit of God in me? My, my invitation to you today is, is self-evaluation. Again, not evaluating your neighbor, evaluating yourself and saying, has God's Spirit come and taken up residence in my life? And if so, where's the impact? Where's the impact? Listen, this does not mean that you are some mighty George Washington or Abraham. You can be a Rahab who says, I am broken. I got nothing. I, I, don't, I don't know where I've been or all the things, but I need Jesus, and I trust in Him. There's the one true God. I see His power, and I believe in Him. It may be small. Hey, spies, just come. You can hide here. It may be small, but God is at work. If He has come into your life, it changes you. It changes you. Genuine saving faith is shown, not, not earned, shown by works. Believe in Jesus today. He alone can save you. And when he saves you, it transforms your life. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing.
to know you today. Father, we admit that though we have your word right here before us, we neglect you, we ignore you, we run far from you when we shouldn't. God, we're, we're humbled when we, we put our lives before you and try to look for fruit. God, oh, we want to be the, the apple orchard that's just overflowing with, with good evidence of fruit in our lives. And yet, God, we come to you so often feeling like we're just a withered tree. But God, we, we trust that if you have truly put our, your spirit inside of us, your spirit's the one who bears fruit. And so that fruit may not come how we want to or when we want it or whatever else, but we trust that you are at work. So God, I pray that we would follow you. God, that your spirit would bring us to life and that our lives would reflect that life. Lord, we need you to bring that life in us. God, for any who have been here today and proclaim with their mouths that you are Lord, and yet their lives don't show any evidence of that, God, I pray that you would once and for all truly bring them to life. God, that they would turn from sin, turn from habitual lifestyles of sin. They would give over a life that's seeking after their own pleasures and desires and instead trust in you, love you, follow you with their whole lives. God, we know that you are the author of salvation. We pray that your saving work through your powerful Holy Spirit would save us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, during our closing song, I invite you to respond to the Lord today. Maybe you want to do it there. Maybe you come pray at the altar or come pray with me. But I pray that today you would know that you are saved by works, just not your own works, Jesus' works, and that you would rejoice in that work today. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.